You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a black Bible in a pew bag near you. Uh, feel free to use that. If you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that with you as a gift from Trinity Church Denver. When I, read, when I conclude the readings this morning, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. So we're going to start this morning with the New Testament reading. So if you'll please stand for the, wording of, excuse, the reading of God's word. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, or if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you'll turn with me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 for our Old Testament reading and the script, uh, sermon text. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs the wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, 
For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Let's follow our help. I ask now that you would help us to hear your word, to treasure your word, and to trust your word. Every single one of them. God, that you'd save us from the the temptation to kind of break the world apart into religious categories and wisdom categories and ethical categories and political categories and economic categories. But God, that we would hear your word and trust that you speak to everything and that your word would be foundational for us so that all of our ethics and all of our child rearing and all of our marriage help and all of our approach to politics and work and eating and drinking, that all of it, God, would flow from a deep and abiding trust and a desire to obey every word that comes from your mouth. And God, that we would do so not as an attempt to kind of earn favor, but we would do so as a people who love you, as a people who recognize and submit to your wisdom, and a people who need, desperately need, always need your grace. In your name we pray, amen. Um, We arrive now here in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, and all week, all I could think is, this is a shotgun of wisdom. And if this little bead doesn't hit you, this one over here will. And, uh, and so what we have today is a smattering of, of short, pithy statements that have certain themes that run through them. Um, and, uh, and I want to start this morning by addressing just the idea of wisdom um, and, and some, some caveats, perhaps, that underlie everything that Solomon is going to say in this chapter. Um, after that, we're going to then kind of pick up some of the major themes in these verses and look at them, uh, think about them. And, uh, and go from there. It's important as you hear this chapter, you don't arrive at chapter 10, which feels really, really different from chapter 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 all the way back, um, that, that you not forget as we turn to chapter 10 um, that Solomon is in fact building an argument. It's all, it all belongs together. You, you can't separate parts of Ecclesiastes out from one another. Um, everything that is preceded in Ecclesiastes Um, sets the foundation or the soil out of which the things that he's going to call us to in the the next three chapters are built. And so um, the kind of wise living that he's going to describe to us here in chapter 10 um, is built on the foundation that he laid um, in the earlier chapters. Um, A a vision of the world that that is unmanageable by us, unshepherdable by us, because I promised Kat mentions much like my cat, you can't make him do anything that you want him to do. In fact, he will discover the thing that you don't want him to do, and he will do it. Um, his new habit is attacking my arm viciously or walking on my keyboard, which is why there's a series of random letters right here in the middle of my notes. Um, uh, life is, the world is like that. It is vapor. It, do, it goes precisely where you don't want it to go. Um, and, uh, and you can't even try the trick, and I've tried it with my cat. Um, try to convince the cat you don't want him to do something 
that you really want him to do. He knows he has a spiritual gift given to all cats to know what you really want and what you really don't want. And Solomon's description of the world is a world that functions like cats. Um, It is unshepherdable. You cannot make it do what you want it to do. But don't worry. There is a God who governs the wind. There's a God who steers the vapor. And so in the midst of a world that is sovereignly governed by the the God of the universe and a a, a humbling recognition that you and I don't get to shepherd that wind, we don't get to determine the outcomes of this world, um, uh, the, the conclusion is not that we should look at the world and look at our lives and say it's meaningless. Therefore, I'll just do whatever I want to do. And the exact opposite Solomon calls us to is to see and to trust, particularly when we can't see that the world has purpose, it has history, it's going somewhere. Um, if you remember back at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, um, that God makes all things beautiful in its time. Um, there is a direction to all of history, uh, all the things that he's doing in society that may disturb you or may give you hope, um, all the things that are happening throughout the whole history of the world and the particular histories of our lives. God is at work shepherding all of it, bringing it to a conclusion at the end of which um, Paul says in Romans, we will say, glory. Or as Solomon says here, we will look back and we will look at all of it and say, beautiful. Um, that is um, the, the reality that kind of undergirds all of Solomon's arguments in the book of Ecclesiastes. So last week he began to consider then, how do we live in the light of a world like that? And, and, and last week we focused on, and the, chapter 9 focused on, well, the, the first thing you should do is you should eat your bread with joy. You should drink wine merrily. Um, you should do your work, whatever work God has given you to do, with all of your might. You should go to bed tired. So, so step one last week was receive the good gifts of God. Receive them gladly. I forgot to mention the wife piece, but all of it. Receive with joy the good gifts of God and enjoy them for what they are right in front of you. This week, um, we, we consider the back half of chapter 9. He, he tipped his hat to a thing that now um, we need to understand chapter 10 is a fuller explanation of, which is, even in a world like this one, where your wisdom, your savvy, your power, your riches, your intensity of your, the pursuit of pleasure cannot direct the world or direct your life or direct your children's lives exactly how you want them to go. Yet, he says in chapter 9, it's still better to live with wisdom in this world. So if last week we talked about receiving the gifts of God and enjoying the gifts of God for what they are, this week now we're going to start to, um, start to understand and to see, okay, in a world like that, in a world where wisdom can't determine outcomes, it's still better to live with wisdom. So what does that wisdom look like? And so this week, he then pulls out a 12-gauge, pumps it, and then fires at us um, a whole series of ideas and concepts um, meant to show us, here's a bit of what wisdom looks like. If you want a fuller picture, a longer picture, um, Proverbs is the same thing. Um, It is uh, the establishment of the importance of wisdom, even in a world like this one. And then a long series of chapters 
uh, describing how to apply wisdom to um, basically every arena imaginable under the sun. So that's where we are. Um, I want to begin by recognizing with a few caveats, uh, we tend to resist, even as Christians, but particularly as Christians living in the West, living in this particular century, our modern age, we tend to resist both the commands of God, the practical commands of God, and we also tend to resist the wisdom of God. But when, when God tells us that he's accomplished our salvation through the work of Jesus on the cross, everybody gets on board. They cheer. It's great news. Love it. But when God tells you, hey, it's really important that you don't hit snooze 15 times every morning. People get all wrinkly. But when God tells you, hey, it's actually deeply important that you raise your children and you educate your children in such a way that on all angles, you're setting before them the law of God and the bigness of God and the glory of God and the commands of God and the grace of God and the love of God. And that has practical implications for, for school, for what your home life is like. People get all wrinkly. And they start using weird words called legalism. Or that you're being legalistic. You're telling me what time I have to get up in the morning. You tell me how I have to educate my kids or how I have to discipline my kids. Uh, you're, you're telling me all kinds of things. And I think it's really, really important we understand that there's, there's actually some, some shifts that have happened philosophically in society um, that, that serve kind of just under the surface as a defense for us hearing religious things from God and receiving them without much, without much rankle. And, and yet when God begins to speak to practical things, to economic things, to political things, to, to, to things that actually touch our lives day in and day out, we tend to resist them. And so I want to set up the rest of chapter 10 by addressing that resistance in the hopes that it will be crushed powerfully here in the first few minutes of this sermon, and then you will gladly, with joy, unrankled, hear the rest of what Solomon has to say. Nancy, well, I'm going to illustrate it this way. Um, I had a football coach in college. This football coach was from Alabama. This football coach dipped. This football coach fit every stereotype that you have as a sinful person about the entire state of Alabama and people from Alabama. And you have them, unless you're from Alabama and you're going, what? What is he talking about? But the rest of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, He fit all of those stereotypes. Um, I, knowing this coach, would never in a million years ask him for help on a math problem. That, 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 come on, fruit, if you're from Alabama, and I apologize, you might be a mathematician, but if you can understand the sinful stereotype that someone might, like me would have, being from Texas, the great, brilliant state of Texas, would have against someone from Alabama, you'll understand. Um, I, I, you, you would meet this guy, and you wouldn't think this guy's probably the most read. I don't know if he's read Camus. I don't know if he's heard of Shakespeare. Um, you, you, you would meet this guy and think just from the overarching demeanor of who he is, this guy, he's not the smartest cookie in the jar. That's a weird metaphor, but I used it. Um, and you are smart enough to figure it out. Um, there, there, there was just a sense that this guy, man, he's not 
all there. Until, until you got into a football meeting room with this guy. Um, I remember multiple times, we'd get to halftime in a football game. He would, at the end of halftime, begin to lay out the first few plays, first 10 plays that we were going to run as an offense. And he would draw them up on the board like he was an astrophysicist. Um, and he would describe for us exactly who on the other team was going to make the tackle and how many yards we would get on that play. And then he would turn to, say, me, and say, unless Mr. Brown or Tiny, as he liked to call me, um, unless, Tiny, you miss your block, in which case this guy's going to get a tackle and it's going to be two yards, a two-yard loss. And he would lay out for us first ten plays of the game, how many, uh, first two, ten plays of the half, how many yards we were going to get each play, who was going to make the tackle, and who was likely to screw up and therefore cost us those yards, and then he was going to have to change everything up because of Mr. Brown or Tiny. Um, and it was like he was a wizard. And when I describe... His brilliance with everything related to offense and football, I can only really compare him to Einstein. He invented entire offenses. He would go to football teams, he would look at their strengths, look at their weaknesses, and he would go, this is the only offense we can run. And it was a specific offense, a crazy offense, an offense that would take off and become all the rage in different teams. But he would invent them out of his head. It was like he could look at a football diagram, he could look at a football game, he could look at a combination of players, he could look at um, all of the different conditions coming into play and all of those variables going around in his head. And he could, he, he was, I, I've often described Mr. Paul Johnson as the most brilliant man I've ever encountered in football. And we often segment the universe into those kind of categories. Not football and everything else like that, but, but you have religious things, theological things over here. Therefore, God's allowed to speak to us about stuff going on in our hearts, stuff that maybe occasionally, at least to certain degrees, may touch kind of personal morality or personal ethics, but largely theological or religious things that we're supposed to believe. And then we come over here to say politics, or we come over here to say economics, or we come over here to say food decisions, or we come over here to basically the rest of life. Um, God may be, because you're pious, God may be allowed to speak into it, but he's more like an advisor. Um, and we often find ourselves hearing the voice of God um, and hearing the word of God speaking very, very clearly to theological issues. But the moment it begins to address things as practical as, say, gender, well, then oftentimes our response is the response of a rebellious teenager when a parent begins to offer wisdom. Like, eh, I'll take that into consideration. Or, whatever you said, I'm going to be like the cat and do the opposite. And, and, and we divide the world into two, two spheres. Um, Francis Schaeffer helpfully illustrated this. Uh, Nancy Piercy, his actual student, um, has further explicated that in a book called Total Truth, in, in which we've divided the universe into the arena of grace and the arena of nature. 
And when it comes to religion, when it comes to what we do in this room, Sunday in and Sunday out, when it comes to what you do when you open this Bible and you read it, maybe devotionally in the mornings, and what we're dealing with there is the realm of grace. Grace can speak to my heart. It can speak to the forgiveness of sins. It can speak to things like heaven and hell. It can speak to eternal realities. Um, and, And those realities, in a very convenient break, have almost nothing to do with how we parent. Have almost nothing to do with how we think about food or what time we should get up in the morning or how we should approach our work or practical societal topics. Like gender, sexuality. Um, God, you need to stay in your lane, and your lane is very clearly defined around issues like forgiveness of sins. Issues like heaven and hell. Issues like merely ideas about kind of theoretical things, about how the world was created. But the moment we actually begin to talk about things like science, or things like politics, or practical things, will God get back in your lane? I mean, I'm sure you're too pious to say those things, but that's how we live. And so what we find ourselves doing is actually resisting what most of the Bible is about. Or we take those things and we try to come up with really weird, crazy interpretations such that a text like Song of Solomon, which is about sex and romance and marriage it it suddenly now in our spin has almost nothing to do with sex and romance and marriage and it's just about some heavenly reality but we separate heaven and earth such that when when God speaks he's addressing stuff that, that belongs in our head or our heart or up in heaven somewhere, um, but he never, it never has to do with how we ought to actually live. So that division of the world then, help, then, then leads us to miss what most of the Bible is actually about. Because when you actually read the Bible, what you find is it deals with glorious things like heaven and hell and grace and the forgiveness of sins, and what you should do on Sundays, and what you should eat, and what you should drink, kind of clothing you wear, how you should speak to your husband, or how you should speak to your wife, how we should think about things like justice, and law, and politics, how, how we should approach things like money. The Bible does not like the divisions that we create. In fact, if we were to take seriously how the Bible is set up, what the Bible speaks to, here's the most pressing reality I I would want to hold out to you, quite apart from the details that we're about to get into. What you believe about God, these heavenly, glorious, beautiful, gracious, marvelous things, what we would normally categorize as religious things, will always come out your fingertips. In other words, it will always affect how you actually live, how you do your work, how you speak to your neighbor, how you think about political issues. Always. 
that separation between grace and nature, between the religious world and everything else, is a complete and absolute fabrication. It's, it's, It's utterly false. What you believe about God and his shepherding of the world, what you believe about God, and frankly the question, do you think God is smart? The religious question that, that many people are easily, um, easily adopt and accept begins with, is God gracious? Yes. But here's maybe a question that when we come to a chapter like chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, you really need to do business with. Is God smart? And not just like averagely smart. Like, you know, he might have a wizard. I don't know what that word means, but I I like the word. Like a good little caveat of advice every once in a while. You get something right on how you're supposed to live. Or is he wise? Like, does he know how the world was created because he did it? Does he know how wine works and bread works? Does he know the best way to raise your kids? Does he know anything about accounting or owning a business or firefighting? See the bowlers. Like, is God smart? And I'm afraid that while, again, I think we're pious enough to answer that question, well, yes, he's very smart. We live as though he's an idiot. As, he's a the, as if he's just like a theologian, theologians are idiots, um, and they live in their nice ivory towers, and by idiots, I don't mean they're idiots about theology. I mean, they're often idiots about like things like putting up trim in a house. Go look at it was two houses ago, I did trim in one room. If you want to see the proof of the pudding of the idiocy of theologians, go look at the trim in the room. I won't tell you in case you're here and you own the house. Um, like, we think of God as really, really smart here. He knows all this stuff. When he speaks to it, you should listen. You should trust him. You should believe him. But if he begins to speak about things like carpentry, even though he was a carpenter, when he speaks to things about carpentry, yeah, we've had all kinds of advances in technology and equipment. He probably doesn't know much about that. My prayer is that you come to terms when you come to a chapter like Ecclesiastes 10 or Proverbs or, or frankly, most of the Bible. You go to those places with the conviction that God is smart. And not just smart, infinitely smarter than you. Infinitely smarter than physicists. Infinitely smarter than politicians. Infinitely, that one's easier, but infinitely smarter than lawyers. That he knows how the world works. He knows how your life works or ought to work. He can diagnose 
with perfect precision, exactly where all of the rough spots, all of the difficulties, all the places where your life or your marriage or your parenting isn't or your work isn't working, he can look at it and diagnose it and he can tell you exactly what's wrong. Do you think God is smart? What you believe about the lordship of Jesus what you believe about God, what you believe about the gospel, the grace of God and the mercy of God, and how that confession contains universes, including your home life, your work life, your prayer life, your diet What you believe about these things will always come out your fingertips. And when you and I resist the wisdom of God, resist the law of God, the commands of God, not even to mention the the theology that's expounded in Scripture about the nature of God and the nature of grace and justification and those kinds of things, When we resist him on things like hierarchy, which is in this text, you confess through your fingertips that God isn't very smart. I'm smarter. We moderns have figured some things out. He'll come around eventually. He's God. Sometimes he's slow, but He gets there. That sounds ridiculous. But I'd say most, most evangelical Christians in America live that way. So, what does Solomon do in chapter 10? Chapter 10 I'm going to look at verse 2 in particular, kind of set the the framework up through which we're going to kind of work our way through um, a number of these ideas. He says this, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Enter political joke there. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Solomon says in a world governed by God and ungovernable by us, you can still look at that world regardless of outcomes. Because he's already told us that sometimes he sees fools step into places of power. He's already told us that he's seen fools sometimes make off like banshees and have enormous amounts of money. Um, In other words, you can't look at outcomes as indicators, um, but there is a sense in which you can look at the world. You can look at just how people walk down the road, and you can gain a sense that there are wise and that there are wise people and there are foolish people. Um, They always tend to shout in the way they live in that kind of world. You can still make distinctions between the wise and the foolish. So he says. Um, The fool, even when he walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Um, This is not imagining someone 
Perhaps one of you um, walking down the road and every time you pass someone going like, I am an idiot. I'm a fool, total fool. It's not what this is describing. What it's describing is like, as you walk through life, as anyone walks through life, their life will shout to people around them, I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. Or it will shout to them, wisdom. And, and everyone can see it. And you know this, right? You can meet certain people and you go, call them this. But you see it and you go, that guy, I don't want to drive with that guy. You know? There's people you've never driven with, quite apart from their actual skill driving, and you just don't want to get in the car with them because you know that you're likely to end up in a place like a ditch or Alabama, I don't know. Like you, you might end up somewhere that is clearly foolish. And so that there is, um, at, at first, the kind of establishment that he says, is like you can look at a life lived, just a little bit of observance, and you'll know this is a wise person or this is a foolish person. So what does that fool look like as he inclines to the left and the wise man inclines to the right? First, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. I originally titled this sermon, A Little Poop in Your Soup. My wife told me I couldn't do that. So I changed the title. Um, And uh, this is coming from an illustration. Um, A a guy told me a long time ago, we were talking about um, entertainment and what kind of shows you should watch or not watch. And he said, if I made you a glorious birthday cake... Like amazing, looked incredible. The icing was perfectly made. And there was just a little bit, might have dropped a little dog dropping into the batter. Would you eat it? No, it ruins everything, right? Doesn't matter how, I mean, you could scrape the icing off, but even then, like what if it's right on the surface and then you're scraping, anyway. Like like just a little folly ruins what is otherwise a good life. And so um, the, the first point that he makes is that foolishness ruins many good things. Um, uh, even if it's a perfumer's ointment, this, this, this expensive thing, it just gives off a stench. And the idea here is, again, tied to this, um, that you can see a fool and you can see um, a wise person um, as they live their lives. Um, there is still, no matter how good and polished their life looks, you meet them and then you, you have just a small conversation with them or you get in the car with them, uh, whatever the thing might be. And no matter how smooth everything looks, even if you're driving a Maserati, I always, I, I reference Maseratis and I, I do, I've never driven a Maserati and I, I think they're probably much nicer cars, but the, the name Maserati just sounds like the nicest car, right? Driving a Maserati, they, they have a perfumer's ointment about their life. And yet something stinks. You, as you live your life, you can cover it over with whatever you want. Um, you can present, sales guys are really good at this. Um, uh, they can present to you, uh, there, there's a lot of people going into finance that are really good at this. Um, uh, they, they can present to you like they are experts. 
And yet there's something as you sit there at the coffee shop getting sold another batch of bad stock or life insurance or whatever the thing is. And as you sit there getting sold it, it's very smooth. They've got charts, they've got the graphs, they've got the whole thing laid out for you. And something stinks. You're not sure what it is. You don't think they're being dishonest. Very earnest people. But something smells. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's called folly. The Bible says you can smell it. You can hear it. You can observe it. You you can catch it. And that folly will ruin all of it. No matter how smooth or how brilliant the presenter may seem. Maserati, if it hits a big enough pothole, you will ruin the Maserati. doesn't matter that it's a Maserati. That's why you should have got a truck. So, the foolish person gives off a stench. The next point I want to draw us our, attention, our, our attention to. Look at verse 5. There's an evil, and this will be just, if you're ready, the most offensive thing I say this morning. Maybe. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error, proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places. and The rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. But we live in an egalitarian age. And what I mean by that is not the specific issue. Usually when people talk about complementarianism or egalitarianism, they're speaking most specifically to the issue of relationship between men and women in the church or men and women in the home. When I talk about egalitarianism, what I mean is an age in which all honor, all authority, all hierarchy is anathema. It's heresy. It has to be flattened. So we can speak of presidents however we want. But we can speak of anyone however we want because we're all the same. And there are no places where honor is just due because of the position, or because of the title, or because of the accomplishment. We've, we've created a world where, um, and there are all kinds of benefits to this world, but benefits that have come with a cost, and, and the cost has been we've completely destroyed, at least in our minds, any sense that, hey, there's a moment standing before someone in which you should just shut your mouth. You should listen. You should just be deferential and say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, even if you disagree. That there are places in this world, that there are people in this world, that there are offices in this world in which honor is actually due to them. And, And here's the secret. Hierarchy cannot be eliminated. We've tried really, really hard for the last few hundred years. French Revolution got us kicked off with a bang. 
took everyone who deserved honor, let's kill them, and then we won't have to show honor anymore because everyone will be the same. Do you know what happened very quickly in the French Revolution? There was suddenly a whole new group of people who needed to be shown honor. But we try to eliminate the differences between men and women and husbands and wives. So it's just flat. There's no distinction, no honor due, no specific honor due to a husband. You can't avoid it. You can try, you can fight, you can wave your um, liberty flag. You, you can do all of you want, but the, but the reality is, is God has designed the world such that it always functions with hierarchy. Which means the best we can hope for, the best we can work for, and it is by design the best is that the people who find themselves in positions where honor is due are men and women of faithfulness and integrity and righteousness. That they're wise and not fools. The best we can hope for is not we can finally figure out how to create truly flat marriages. We're all just equal partners. Now the best we can hope for is that husbands would be husbands of honor and grace and self-sacrificial love and wisdom. That the place of honor would be marked by honor. The goal of a society like ours should not be to eliminate honor, to eliminate um, the, 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 the showing of deference Um, to those who are in positions of power or authority, but rather that we should work and pray and earnestly desire that those places would be filled with people deserving of honor. What Solomon says is the fool lives in a world where that, that system is flipped or cut down. We live in a world that tries to eliminate, tries to eliminate the, the very nature of the world itself. Solomon says he lives in a world where fools, where slaves, where those who aren't in a position of honor ride horses, and those who are in a position of honor walk. We live in an upside-down world where honor is not shown. But we live, the wise live in a world that earnestly seeks to put people of honor in positions of honor, delights to show honor. So, egalitarianism is bad. All of its forms. Hierarchy is just the design of the universe. Therefore, we should seek to fill it with goodness, obedience, joy, honor, virtue. Let's keep going. The fool, verse 10, if the iron is blunt, one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. One of the themes that develops throughout this chapter, one of the main themes um, which I think we oftentimes have trouble with, um, is how just 
matter of fact and earthy the Bible is. Um, we, We often, I have known people who've grown up in Christian families where things like food or drink or good music or sex were all kind of treated as dangerous and sometimes necessary things. The Bible doesn't approach the world that way. And so here is, iron is blunt, one does not sharpen the edge, you must use more strength. Here, it's addressing work. There's not some hidden secret spiritual meaning in that verse. It's just saying like, do your work with wisdom. If you're going to go cut trees, you should make sure your axe is sharp. Otherwise, it's just going to bounce off the wood and you're going to get really sore hands and a knotted up tree. Like, like you should approach your work wisely, smartly. Do your work with wisdom. Don't do your work in the hardest way imaginable just because you think that somehow by doing your work in the hardest way imaginable, um, that honors God because it was hard. Like, no, what God wants you to do is sharpen your axe. What God wants you to do is, if you're a coder, figure out the shortcut for the code. I'm looking at a coder. Um, if you're, I don't know if coder is an actual app, uh, actual job, but I like to use the word to describe anyone who works on computers. Um, if you're a pastor, you should figure out how to write sermons in not the hardest way imaginable, but, but the best way imaginable. Um, whatever it is that you do, not only should you do it with all of your might, which is the last chapter, you should also do it in a way that like does it well, but does it as easily as you possibly can. Kids, don't make your math problems at school extra hard. Like, if you can learn a shortcut, learn a shortcut, so long as you're still learning how to do the math problem. Don't just learn about this thing called a calculator. You type stuff in, and it just tells you the answer. Learn how to do the math, but learn how to do the math in the easiest way that you can. Learn shortcuts. Learn ways to do things skillfully. And the Bible speaks to this. Isn't that wonderful? Like, imagine what God is like. He's concerned about the fact that you keep trying to cut down that tree without sharpening your axe. That matters. And later, look at this. Verse 19, bread is for laughter. Wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. There's not like a secret meaning here. Saying, look, you sit down to eat bread, you should laugh. That's good. Laugh. You drink wine. It's there to gladden your life. We have it in communion. Sometimes we drink this wine very solemnly because I know it's a little tiny cup. But it's meant to fill you with gladness. When you sit down tonight, have some wine. Maybe you should have wine. Maybe you shouldn't have wine. I don't know. But if you do have wine, do it with gladness. Otherwise, you're defeating its very purpose. It's why it's there, is to bring gladness. And in this last line, which people get hung up on, and money answers everything. I think he is speaking in hyperbole here. Money can't atone for your sins. But here's the reality. Money is incredible at solving problems. It can create problems. I'll grant all the other things that the Bible says about money. But here's what God says to you about money. It's good to have some. It's good to have some because you can give it away. It's good to have some because you can invest. It's good to have some because your roof caves in and you insurance finds a way around it and you've got to build a new roof. 
Guess what? It's like the only thing that's going to do that. Money. And it will either be the money you earned or you have or it will be somebody else's money, but you're going to need money to do that. Like This is simply a matter-of-fact statement, and this is how God speaks all over the place. Eat bread and laugh. Drink wine and be made merry by it. You should. And, and, you should try to have some money. It's okay. Some of us, particularly those of us who grew up in some strange Christian corners, were told our whole life that bread is just there to, to make sure you have energy for the next day. And wine, well, nobody needs wine anymore. Because we have soda. It's better. And we have water. And that's good enough. And money, be careful. That money will get you. And if you have too much money, then you're probably evil. The Bible is, says the opposite stuff. Like it says, hey, bread is good. And wine. It's there to make your life more glad. And money. It answers everything. Whatever problems you have, like you can, most of those problems, most of the problems you're going to encounter in life, you, if you've got some money, you can solve that problem. It's not evil. And having money isn't evil. And drinking wine isn't this really dangerous endeavor that might lead you astray. I mean, eating bread isn't just going to make you fat. Or gluten, with all the things that happen to gluten people. These are blessings. They're gifts from God. And they ought to be received with thanksgiving from God. Which, by the way, I've found to be a wonderful deterrent to misusing those gifts. It becomes really, really hard to overdrink and give thanks to God. For it, 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 I, you just don't find yourself giving thanks to God on your fifth glass of wine. You don't find yourself becoming stingy and greedy and just simply amassing wealth for the sake of wealth when you receive that um, any money that you have and say thanks to God when you recognize you received it from it it becomes really really easy to give it away it becomes really really easy to use it wisely it becomes really really easy to invest it wisely because it was a gift from him the fool doesn't see any of this the wise do I would encourage you to work your way through every little part of this text. The fool, what, what, what is the tendency to the left? They don't stop talking. Being that it's almost 1130, I'm going to not be a fool. And I'm going to stop talking. The fool just spouts off everything that he says, just constantly talking, 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 talking. And we live in an age that encourages this. There's a thing called Twitter, although it's not, I think it's called something else now, like X. <laughs> Leave it to Elon Musk. Um, where you're just encouraged to like have an opinion about everything. Like, here's what Solomon says. Fools have an opinion about everything. Like, you want to be wise? I remember my dad told me, like, took me to the place in Proverbs that said essentially like, hey, if, if you're quiet and you don't just spout off your opinion all the time, even if you're an idiot, people think you're smart. Like, the fool just talks, just shares his mind everywhere, has to address everything going on all the time around him. Like, here's, a, here's just a clue. If you want to move towards wisdom, if you want to move towards the right rather than the left, 
on this text, not politically or whatever, but like, shut up. Is that rude? I'm not supposed to say that. Talk less. Share your opinion less. Listen more. Learn more. Evaluate more. Think before you talk. Don't just endlessly talk. Being that it's 1130, I'm not going to endlessly talk, but I do want us to end where we began. Here's the reality. As you read through Proverbs, as you read through places like Ecclesiastes 10 and 11, you are going to discover, you are, no matter how brilliant you've been in life, you and I are often fools. We just do stupid stuff. We find ourselves in certain situations and we talk too much. Um, We find ourselves taking really weird positions on bread and wine. We find ourselves investing money stupidly. We find ourselves doing our work in inefficient and unnecessary ways, or perhaps even lazy ways, which is touted everywhere, not just as... um, Morally bad, but it's stupid. Like, it's, it's dumb to do your work poorly. And so the reality is, is that we live out this life through our fingertips. And whether we realize it or not, it exposes what we believe about God. Have you listened to him? Have you considered his words to be smart? Smarter than anything you can imagine. And then tried as best you can in the power of the spirit to live in line with his wisdom. How he describes the good life. The best lived life. And what you and I will find, and you will find it all the time if you're honest. Is that you and I are idiots. But we do foolish things all all the time. But, but here's the glorious good news. Listen to Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us. Wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The reality is, is there's a lot of us who do foolish things and live foolishly often. And one of the ways I know that is not because I've spent enormous amounts of time walking, watching which side of the road you walk down. But because I know from the word of God, that is his strategy. To choose the foolish. To give them faith in Jesus. To justify them. Glorious truth. To sanctify them. Glorious truth. And to make Jesus for them their very wisdom. Christ did not just come so that your religious sins can be forgiven and you can go to heaven someday when you die. He came and he died and he redeemed us and he purchased us so that you and I wouldn't have to live like fools anymore. 
we in reliance upon him and trusting him could know and receive and live in the light of his wisdom, not our own. Let's pray and prepare for communion.